Well, good morning. Uh, as Matt said, I'm Matt Guzzi, um, one of the pastors here at Hope. Uh, glad y'all are here with us. Uh, last week, we started a new sermon series looking at the life of Moses. Uh, and if you weren't here last week, I really want to encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon online. Uh, Matt Grimsley preached for us. Um, yes, if you're new here, there are a confusing number of Matts. Uh, Matt Grimsley is uh, planting an Anglican church here in Charlotte that we're partnering with and supporting in that. Uh, Matt Ham is the lead pastor here at OP, and uh, I'm me. So I told the, uh, the 9 o'clock crowd, since Matt wasn't here to introduce me, that if they get confused, to just remember I'm the good-looking athletic one of those Matts. <laughs> So hopefully that'll clear things right up for you. Uh, so Matt, Matt Grimsley started this new sermon series that, uh, that we're really excited about, uh, asking the question, what story are you in? Uh, how do you understand the larger story uh, that you're living in? Is it one where God is present and active or one where he's absent and passive? Uh, it's part of what the Israelites were wrestling with at this time. Uh, is our story being shaped by a God who is kind and loving or callous and indifferent? Uh, how, do you, how do you think about your life? How do you think about the world you're living in? How do you relate to him? What's your image of who God is? Uh, all great questions to just continue to hold and wrestle with throughout our whole series. So we've called this series, uh, the sermon series, The Life of Moses, Redeemed Through Weakness. And that's the, the main lens that we are looking at Moses' life through. Uh, how is that Moses' story? How is Moses' story one being of redeemed through his weakness? And how is that our story? How are we redeemed through our weakness? Now, in many ways, Moses' story is unique. His role in redemptive history is unique. Uh, the way that he encounters God in the passage that we're going to look at this morning has really unique aspects to it. Uh, and yet, as we'll see, much of Moses' story uh, reflects our story. It's easy to relate to. It's easy to connect with a lot of what he wrestles with and experiences. So like all uh, your favorite Netflix shows, uh, the highlights from last week sort of set the stage for uh, the story this week. Uh, so let me just recap uh, of what we covered last week. Uh, Moses' story began with him being born at a time when Pharaoh was having all the male Hebrew children killed. Uh, and, but, but Moses was miraculously spared, and Pharaoh's daughter took him in as her son to raise in Pharaoh's household. When he grows older, he sees uh, an Egyptian uh, beating up one of his fellow Hebrews, and in a fit of rage, he kills the Egyptian. He hides the body in the sand, tries to cover it up, uh, but word gets back to Pharaoh and he seeks to kill Moses. So afraid for his life, Moses flees to the land of Midian. Uh, all that is an important context to have kind of in our minds as we come to this passage this morning, uh, to understand the context that we're stepping into. So let, let me pray for us one more time as we turn our attention to our passage this morning. Lord, we are grateful for the way you pursue us, the way you've given us your word, the way you speak to us. Um, Lord, we're grateful for these stories uh, and the relevance that they really do have for our lives today. We pray that you would give us ears to hear, uh, that you would speak to us, that you would be present with us, 
Uh, Lord, I pray that you would give me words for your people this morning and help us to encounter you in a real way. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so let's, uh, the, the passage is printed in your order of worship. If you want to follow along, I'm going to read it as we go through it in chunks, uh, starting with verse 23 of chapter 2. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor. They cried out, and their cry for help because of the difficult labor ascended to God. God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the Israelites, and God knew. Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. Uh, That first phrase, after a long time, uh, that's a bit of an understatement. Uh, at At this time, Moses was 80 years old. His angry outburst over his people's oppression hadn't changed anything. For 40 years, they've experienced more oppression, groaning, crying out. Moses had gone from living in Pharaoh's household to hiding out in exile, afraid for his life. And now with the lowly job of caring for his father-in-law's sheep. Just to engage your mind in the passage, what, what do you imagine... Moses' sense of his life and his story was like at this moment? What did he spend his days thinking about while wandering around in the wilderness with only sheep for company? I don't know about you, but it's, uh, I think it's likely that Moses' thoughts and internal world were occupied by fear, failure, and shame. With the leader of a world superpower wanting to kill him, Uh, It's hard to imagine that fear was never far below the surface. That's not particularly conducive to a good night's sleep. Uh, I have lots of things that keep me up at night. That's not one of them, thankfully. Um, And knowing that he's in exile in a foreign land because he lost his temper and committed murder, I think we can also safely assume he was plagued by a sense of failure. In fact, in the previous chapter, Moses names his first son, Gershom, which sounds like the Hebrew word for foreigner, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. Uh, Certainly it suggests that his failure and the consequences of his failure were in the forefront of his mind all the time, right? If you're going to name your firstborn child related to that, it is ever present for you. Uh, It's a defining reality for you. And then shame. How could the fall from adopted son of Pharaoh to sheep herder, not produce a sense of shame for him. All the potential and opportunity in the world, and here's where he's ended up. So can you relate? Can you relate to Moses? Uh, your life circumstances may be far less dramatic, uh, but is there, is there this sense of fear, of failure, of shame that plagues you? One of the most impactful books that I've read over the last couple years, and I feel like I've been recommending to everybody in my orbit, uh, is Kurt Thompson's Soul of Shame. Uh, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's really shaped how I think about myself, my own story, what I do with my shame, and and what the people that I I meet with and do ministry with, uh, how they're processing their story. 
And Thompson, he, he argues in the book that all of us can relate to the experience of shame. After telling several stories about clients he's seen as a psychiatrist, Thompson writes this. He says, you needn't have ever darkened the office door of a psychiatrist. It doesn't require the breakdown of our mental health to be plagued with it. It only requires that you have a pulse. To be human is to be infected with this phenomenon we call shame. Shame is something we all experience at some level, more consciously for some than for others. Of course, there are obvious examples that come to mind, times we've felt everything from slight embarrassment to deep humiliation. Uh, friends, I, I, I don't preach that often, and um, finding sermon illustrations can be part of the challenge of that for me. Uh, this one was not particularly hard. Um, I, immediately, it, when I was preparing and reading that through that and reflecting on Thompson's book, uh, two examples of shame, experiencing shame, just popped to my head, uh, both from this last week. Uh, one significant and one small. The first, we were, uh, I was in a smaller meeting with some of the staff, um, and uh, like I'm, Matt's kind introduction is going to really highlight, uh, you, you'll be able to appreciate why this was so difficult for me. Um, but one of the staff in this meeting, uh, through tears, turned to me and said, I love you, but I feel really dismissed by you. And she was kind with it. She was not angry. She was soft. She was courageous to tell me. But I just really hurt her. And uh, like as Matt said, like my job description is care for the staff, right? Uh, so the, like there's not a, there wasn't a more poignant way for me to fail. And for it to be right there in my face, this person I care about, I just hurt so deeply. Uh, so, the, you know, I'm feeling the failure of that. I'm feeling the shame of that, uh, the grief of having hurt her. Uh, and then a couple, year, a couple hours later, uh, three of us get in the car to go to a, a birthday celebration for one of the other staff. And you've all probably experienced this, right? You, you get in the car, um, Google Maps is not good at knowing where you are in a parking lot. So you know how you can start off and you sort of do the corkscrew to just figure out, you know, proceed to route that, that line. That, um, so I do this weird circuitous route, just get on our way to lunch. And it's something small, it's insignificant, but loud in my mind is you're such an idiot. And everybody just saw it. Um, like, you know, just feeling exposed, feeling dumb. Uh, so one significant example, one insignificant. But throughout the week, they kept coming back to mind, right? Shame replays the tape over and over again um, with this very unhelpful overlay of you're an idiot. Can you relate to that? Do you, do you experience that tape, the voice of accusation, the sense of, what am I doing? Uh, and everybody knows that I don't know what I'm doing. So what do you do with that? What do you do with your fear, with your failure, your shame? How do you quiet uh, or numb those feelings when they come up? Moses didn't have a lot of options available to him as he's wandering around in the wilderness with sheep. 
Not much to distract him from his own thoughts. No online shopping, no ESPN, no Netflix binges, no scrolling, doom scrolling Instagram and TikTok videos. Uh, He is alone with his thoughts, uh, aware of how he has failed so badly and constantly in his face, the consequences. No wonder he was so interested in a burning bush. Finally, something to distract me from my own thoughts. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Moses led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. As Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire but not consumed. Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't the bush burning up? Again, we read it as dramatic, but it's a bush that the fire won't go out. It just doesn't take much to get Moses' attention at this point. It's not until he gets closer that he realizes what's really going on. So how do we understand what's going on? What's happening here in the passage? Well, in the midst of Moses' fear, his failure, and his shame, God's pursuing him. This is what we see God do over and over again throughout Scripture. When Adam and Eve first sin, they're naked, afraid, and hiding. And God comes to them in the garden. And he says, where are you? Come out from hiding. Let's talk. Gospel of John, Jesus comes to the woman at the well woman with several failed marriages, who's living with a man who's not her husband. And the woman comes to the well in the heat of the day to avoid the shameful looks and the awkward questions. Jesus organizes things to meet her there. And he asks her for a drink. He engages her in dialogue. He pursues her heart. He meets her in the midst of her shame. Gospel of Luke, Zacchaeus the tax collector particularly unpopular occupation in their day, even more so than in ours. Uh, He climbs a tree to observe Jesus pass by from a distance. But Jesus comes to him. He calls him by name, tells him to come down because he wants to stay at his home that night. There's this pursuit of people in the midst of their shame. Over and over again, God is drawn to us in our fear, our failure, and our shame. And so God comes to Moses. Text goes on. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, he answered. Do not come closer, he said. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he continued. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. What do you do with that story? How does it strike you? How do you think about, how do you process this scene? Uh, The story of Moses encountering the living God. Honestly, how do you think about it? Um, Do you hear that? Do you read it uh, as fiction? as a sort of Bible fairy tale, or as a sort of thing that only happened to a select few of people in ancient history. Uh, I don't know anyone who's miraculously seen a a burning bush, uh, and I don't know many people who claim to hear God speak audibly. Honestly, frankly, I'm skeptical of those who do. Um, 
That's always my first thought. But this idea, the idea that we can actually encounter the living God, it's one of the most radical and most fundamental claims of Christianity. In the quote on the front of your bulletin, Dallas Willard gets at this in a way that I find really challenging and really helpful. Uh, Willard says this, Today, I continue to believe that people are meant to live in an ongoing conversation with God, speaking and being spoken to. I believe that this can be abundantly verified in experience when rightly understood. God's visits to Adam and Eve in the garden, Enoch's walks with God, and the face-to-face conversations between Moses and Jehovah are all commonly regarded as highly exceptional moments in the religious history of humankind. Aside from their obviously unique historical role, however, they are not meant to be exceptional at all. Rather, they are examples of the normal human life God intended for us. God's indwelling his people through personal presence and fellowship. Have you encountered God that way? Is that, is that a felt experience for you? Have you had times praying where you just had a deep sense that you weren't alone? You weren't just talking to yourself. Or have you had thoughts come into your mind that just clearly weren't your own? God's speaking to you in the midst of prayer. Are you open to this biblical claim that that kind of encounter and relationship with God, the living God, is actually possible? Well, what happens when we do encounter God? What do we, how do we think about this category? Again, Moses' story is repeated throughout the Bible. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. When we encounter God's presence, especially when we first encounter him, the first experience is usually one of exposure, an awareness of his holiness and my sinfulness. When the prophet Isaiah first encounters God, his initial response is, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. When Peter first sees Jesus clearly in the miraculous catch of fish in Luke 5, what does he do? He falls at Jesus' knees, and he says, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Now that humble sense of God, humbling sense of God's holiness and my sinfulness, uh, it doesn't occur every time we come into God's presence. Uh, At least that's not my experience. But the felt reality of the difference between God and us is often a part of our experience of him, what it means to actually encounter him. So back to our text. Moses, the exiled murderer, He finds himself standing on holy ground in the presence of God, hiding his face because he's afraid to look at God. And what happens next? God speaks to him again. Verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt and have heard them crying out because of their oppressors. I know about their sufferings, and I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, 
a land flowing with milk and honey. The territory of the Canaanites, Hethites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Folks, I imagine this is the last thing Moses expected to hear in this moment. Rather than his past catching up with him, rather than the other shoe dropping, rather than a pronouncement of judgment by this holy God, Moses, God proclaims his loving kindness to Moses. He has seen his people's misery. He's heard their cries. He knows about their suffering. And he's come down to rescue them. Do you hear the tenderness in all that? In your, um, if you're a sermon outline person, uh, the, I forget which point we're on, but the point in your outline where it says, uh, I put that Moses finds God personal. Uh, I struggled to find the right word that captured uh, what's going on here. Uh, and personal is a weak word. Um, it is personal, yes. But there's this intimate faithful care for his people that God's highlighting for Moses. In the midst of his fear, shame, sense of sinfulness, God says, this is who I am. I have this intimate, tender care for my people. Uh, really, the, the Hebrew word hesed is what captures uh, what we're seeing in God's words here. Uh, hesed is difficult to translate. Uh, lots of commentators say it's, it's hard to capture all that's in that. Uh, which made me feel a little bit better about struggling so much to find a word for the outline. Um, But it's often translated loving kindness or steadfast love. And I particularly love uh, Michael Card. He's a songwriter, theologian, writer. Um, He he has a great definition of hesed, this, this Hebrew word that's hard to translate. Card says, when the person from which I have a right to expect nothing gives me everything. Uh, that, that's the picture of our relationship with God. That's the, how his love for us comes out. And again, this was one of those uh, illustrations that came to me easily, a very tangible, very earthly uh, example of what this experience of said feels like. Uh, this receiving everything when you have a right to nothing. When uh, my family, our family went on a uh, sabbatical, this is 13 years ago now. I'm sure y'all's is going to go better than this. Um, but we, uh, we got a grant. We went out to California and went to uh, national parks out there. Spent the first little bit at, uh, in Big Sur, which was beautiful, sequoias, all that. But if you have kids, you know that like convincing your children that they're going to spend the summer just with you instead of with their friends. Like, we're already starting in deep emotional debt, right? Relational debt with them. We're in, stay in this sort of small cabin in Big Sur. It it was okay, but plenty of complaining by them. Uh, And then we have a four-hour drive um, after a week to uh, another place um, and, and to visit Yosemite which I was super excited about. We were going to stay in the park at this historic hotel, all that. So end of the four-hour car ride, we get out. I go in to check in. You know, they're complaining. Jen's with them outside, tolerating their complaints. And I go in and talk to the lady at the front desk, and she's looking through the computer, and she says, "I, I don't see your reservation. I'm like, all right, it's, um, I'm not panicked yet. 
And it's one of those times where having the last name Guzzi is helpful. I'm like, if there's a Guzzi in there, it's us. There aren't many of us. So she looks some more and she says, oh, I see it. Your reservation is for next month. And I, um, like, I, I, I pull it up on my phone and it, it is. It's for next month. Like, I, I have no, I can't argue that they've made a mistake. Like, I'm stuck. And so she keeps you know, I'm just sort of staring at her, and she, she looks at me, and she says, everything in the park is booked. We, we don't have anything. that There's nowhere I can put you. And so, I, I mean, I'm, I'm in the fog. Uh, you know, maybe you'll resonate with this. I'm in the fog of shame and failure, right? I'm trying to feel like I, I can't come back next month. We've wasted the money on that. I, I don't know where I am. I don't know where to stay. I'm tired. I definitely don't have the energy to go tell Jen and the kids. Um, and so I'm just standing there staring at her. And she's just staring at me. And then I just keep staring at her. And finally, something shifts, and she just has pity on me. And she says, let me get my manager. Uh, she, they go and talk. She said, we'll find something. And so, you know, they do their thing. I'm still just, I'm in the fog. Uh, just... I've screwed this up. Everybody's already upset. This is a disaster. Um, and so she comes back a minute or two later. And she said, well, we found you a place. It's not in the park, but it's right outside the park. Uh, they're going to honor the same rate that you were going to pay here. So, you know, it's not what you'd plan, but you have a place to stay. So I'm, I'm just grateful to have a place to sleep. I go out. I tell them. We drive outside the park to this place, and I go to check in. And I'm standing across from this woman. And she says, well, let me look. And then she calls her manager over. And I'm just like, oh, no. <laughs> um, and I can hear her whisper, is this rate right? And, and I start realizing, like, this is like a five-star place they've sent us to. My kids still talk about the bacon from the breakfast buffet at this place. It was so much better than any place else we stayed the whole trip. Um, and, you know, l looking back, like, I'm sure this woman's like, they clearly don't belong here. <laughs> but it was this great, like, just that picture of, I'm, you know, standing at the first place, and I have no cards to play. I have no claim on anything. And I end up in this beautiful place that my kids still love and talk about. We have a Christmas ornament from there, <laughs> um, right? It's hesed. It's this far more than I ever deserved. And that's, it's just this small earthly picture of God's affection for us. Uh, the extravagance with which he loves us that we have no claim on. That's what Moses encounters, right? He's expecting judgment. He's aware of his shame. And he gets hesed. Holiness and hesed. Yeah. If either of those is missing w when you think about and relate to God, um, if you experience God as sort of a cosmic teddy bear or grandfather, or if you experience him as this angry, judgmental father, uh, you're relating to a figment of your imagination, not the God of the Bible. God pursues us in our fear and failure and shame. And we experience his holiness and hesed when he shows up. Our need exposed and his loving and kindness extended. Uh, Moses, it, it, you know, in this passage, he's experiencing all of this in rapid succession. 
curiosity over a burning bush has turned into finding himself undone, standing on holy ground, and then God declaring his affection for his people. It's a great scene. But then God continues, and this is where it starts to get a bit comical. Verse 9, this is God still speaking to Moses. So because the Israelites' cry for help has come to me, and I have also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them, therefore go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Just when Moses thought this was going really well. Can you imagine what a bad idea this would have sounded like to him? Uh, You're sending me back to the the place where they're wanting to kill me. Um, And immediately you see Moses start scrambling, right? He's not excited about this plan. Verse 11, Moses asked God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? God answers, I will certainly be with you, and this will be the sign to you that I am the one who sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. Do you hear the fear and failure and shame return for Moses in his question? Who am I? I'm an 80-year-old exiled murderer who's been tending sheep for the past 40 years. You have got the wrong guy for this job. God's response, who you are doesn't matter. All that matters is that I am with you. Moses keeps going though. Moses asked God, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What should I tell them? He's still looking for an out. God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. Friends, there's so much in those three verses, um, and I am aware of the time, so we're not going to try to cover all of that. Um, but this, especially this declaration by God of I am who I am, right? That, it, it's worth a whole sermon. Um, we're not going to try to delve into all that. There's this guy named Tim Keller. He's probably said something about it. Go look that up. Um, but we're going to focus, I want you to pay attention to what, is, what does that answer mean for Moses in his story? In saying, I am who I am, God's telling him, I have no beginning, no cause. I am self-existent, self-sustaining, and so I am utterly sufficient for what I'm calling you to. I'm with you, and I am enough. That's the gist of God's response to Moses, to all his protesting. Not a lot of detail, not a lot of explanation, but everything Moses needs to know and believe. Friends, Moses' story, like we said in the beginning, Moses' story is our story. In this fallen world, we live with fear, failure, and shame. 
And in the midst of that reality, God pursues us. And when we really encounter him, we experience both his holiness and his loving kindness, his hesed. And then he calls us to lead and serve in ways that we are inadequate for so that we learn to experience and trust in his being with us. It's how we learn to be redeemed through our weakness. The elders here at Hope have been reading the book Leading with a Limp together. Um, And in it, I'm going to close with this, but in it, Dan Allender asks, who in his right mind would want to be a leader? And who would admit that God calls every one of us to lead? The dilemma is this. God does, does call every one of us to lead. Again, a leader is anyone who is moved to influence others to engage a problem or an opportunity for good. Pay attention to your inner dialogue right now. Uh, as, you, as I read that, do you start scrambling like Moses? Uh, do you intuitively say, He's talking about pastors and church staff and elders and deacons and women's shepherding team. He's not talking about me. That's not me. I'm not part of the everyone who's called to lead and serve. Who am I? And God's answer to Moses is the same answer he has for us. You are mine, created to know me and live in relationship with me. My loving kindness is bigger than all your fear failure, and shame. And I will be with you as I send you into the world to lead and to serve. Let me pray for us. Lord, help us to believe that. Uh, Everything in us wants to cry, who am I? I am not adequate for it. And I don't want to experience any more fear, failure, and shame. And, And stepping into spaces of inadequacy just stirs all that up for me lord help us to to really hear and trust your words that you're with us and that you're enough for us help us to be eager for to and curious about where you are calling each of us to lead and serve uh, to care for your world to go out into it uh, for our good that we might know you more deeply and for the good of the world that's desperate to to know you, to experience your kindness the way we have. Lord, would you use us to that end? Would you give us the the courage to ask the question of where you're sending us? We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.